Thank you, Renee, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Is it, um, you're on the East Coast time, right? So it's like almost, almost end of day. Yeah, it's 3.30. I made a coffee. If it had been an hour later, it would have been a beer, but you know. <laughs> I will confess to having had a beer. Uh, Shabbat Shalom. Happy Friday. I had it with some of the local jerky, which is as hard as, as saddle leather and much spicier. So I, I'm feeling very, um, I'm feeling very rustic here, but I'm, I'm fueled by IPA and ready for this conversation, Renee. All right. That we've had for years now, I think. Yes. Uh, for at years, least four. For years. <laughs> at least four. Yeah, since 2016, at least. Yep, um, and usually over beer, but let's. Uh, often, yes. Dry in with an audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, you are you're a beer aficionado, Renee. I remember. I, I think our, one of our first outings was at like Rogales in San Francisco, if I recall yeah. correctly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, so um, the topic. Let the room fill in. Um, and um, just so you know, Renee, the, the, you know, the call-in guys also stream this uh, or syndicate it via RSS, so it'll show up on Apple Podcasts and all the rest of it. So okay. the, the crowd on a Friday afternoon may not be huge, but the total audience can often be quite large because it, it goes out as a, as a regular podcast. Um, and I, you know, I think it might be a topic uh, in which we might have some questions at the end. So I'll maybe have some speakers up at the end if you don't mind, Renee. No, or that some, good. Yeah. yeah, cool. Probably. Okay, great. Yeah, so I guess you know, what's triggered this um, is – the whole free speech Elon thing. And it's interesting because the Elon story was building for a couple of weeks, right? And at first it seemed impossible. It's like, what, you know, how, how could it possibly happen that Elon would buy Twitter? And then suddenly one day we wake up, I guess it was Monday and it's like, Oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, and it is, I mean, I think everyone who follows poll Orcast is probably pretty online and media savvy, but there's been this huge meltdown about what Elon means for free speech. Um, it, to the point that, um, and you know, you could always pinpoint sort of strange beliefs, right? It's like I, I don't think these are necessarily representative of everything, but um, you know, the thought that free speech in some sense could be a threat to democracy, right? Or there's such a thing as too much free speech, and right. it, and it's and it's funny because of course there is, right? And I think uh, you you wrote, oh, I should plug your piece by the way, which I linked to in the original posting about the show. Uh, you wrote in the Atlantic, for which you write pretty regularly, about the free speech thing. I, do we want to maybe pause there and maybe summarize what was in that piece or, or your thoughts on that piece? Because, you yeah. know, it came, out, it came out kind of early in the cycle and some things have changed since then. So maybe you want to, you want to add something to that piece. Yeah, so it was a question of the sort of what, what is going to happen. Um, what is the impact of this going to be on free speech? And uh, my thinking was actually that it was largely overblown, that it's not going to do a ton. Um, but that I felt that Elon, you know, we, we were having this conversation absent any actual demonstrable policy suggestions from Elon on what was going to happen. And so we had these kind of vagaries that this was the town square. We were going to open source the algorithms. We were going to defeat the spam bots and authenticate all the humans. Right. And I think roughly speaking, those were the kind of four things that were um, the uh, the points that were made at that time. And I was really struck by the free speech town square metaphor. And I was I was interested in it in part because it was one that I myself used to use quite a bit um, Back in, uh, back in 2015, 2016 timeframe. And I was kind of intrigued by the idea that we were, you know, we were all kind of participating in this space. And funny enough, back in 2015, that wasn't even really true, but it felt like it. You know, Twitter has kind of a disproportionate impact on its participants' psyches. And, um, you know, when I was on there, and I was, I was curious about things like the bots, right, and um, the ability for people who ran accounts to really amplify their speech, to, um, to have far more than one person, one voice. And what was this doing to the discourse? And so I'd been thinking about this for a while, but had ultimately over the years kind of moved away from the idea of 
this as the public square. I felt that that was kind of an idealization. It wasn't really representative. And there were certain just kind of fundamentally different things about the ways that we engage on Twitter that were totally different than, um, than we would engage in, in kind of real life in the town square. So the essay was a little bit about that. Um, and I was pushing back on this idea of content moderation as censorship, which I think you and I over the years have debated. Um, right. And I believe you also brought up an essay I had written back in 2018, um, which used the phrase freedom of speech is not freedom of reach, which I didn't yes. actually refer to in the Atlantic one. That was actually a totally dis different essay that in 2018 was really arguing that we should think about amplification differently than content creation. And we can, you know, kind of go into those, uh, those various things. But I think you summarized my essay as Twitter is not the public square, moderation isn't censorship, and freedom of speech is uh, freedom of reach. So we can debate the finer points in that. It isn't. Just to be clear in, in the last statement, right? So yeah, I, I think I... you said, yes. You're all right, you're right. <laughs> sorry, right, right. Is, is not, is and, not, is not. And, I'm sorry, I'm like right. mixing up who's who in that, in that framing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And well, and I, and I quoted... Uh, I quoted your essay because I think at the time that meme kind of became viral and became, it, it, you know, you, I think you, you birthed this meme that became kind of a, a, a very strong talking point in that debate at the time, right? And so, um, yeah, I guess so. I think there's a few things we agree on and a few things we disagree on. Um, just to take, I guess, those points one after the other. I mean, you, you, you didn't quote that phrase directly in your recent essay, but you did allude yeah. to the fact that, um, you know, the, the question of does a platform or you distribution, right? Like, it, it, is it the case that Twitter must amplify whatever you say as part of this free speech debate? And, and I think you seem against that. You think that's not true. And I, I, I would say, I think it's a subtle point. It's, it's definitely not the case that Twitter owes you reach, right? Like a lot of these people who claim they're being shadow banned just maybe posted boring tweets that nobody wants to pay attention to, right? But, but that said, I, I don't know that... I don't know that, you know, a, a no reach free speech isn't really free speech at all, right? In, in some sense, you, all the, all the cases, whether it be, you know, Brandenburg, Brandenburg v. Ohio or going back to Zenger, right? This editor who published this anti British thing back in the day was about media that got reach, right? It wasn't just your right to say something to a small audience. It was the ability to disseminate that. And so I guess I maybe see that as less binary than a lot of the discourse does. Like free speech is always this binary, you have it or you don't. And to me, it seems to be kind of a knob uh, or, you know, it exists in the middle ground between, you know, do people listen to you or not? And, and somehow, I don't know, it just seems like a lot of the conversations about we should, we should get rid of this amplification because it's obviously evil. Well, to me, it seems part and parcel of speech. Like you can't have speech without some level of amplification. Sure. Maybe it's, I, yeah, yeah. No, well, I, I actually don't think we disagree too much on that. See, so this is the funny thing about memes, right? Um, you don't get to control where they go, right? So, right. <laughs> um, and I actually Googled that phrase the other night just to see where it had gone. And there's, um, you know, because um, Sasha Baron Cohen used it, right? Which, and then most of the uh -huh. perception of it is in the context of Sasha Baron Cohen giving this address at the ADL um, a couple of years ago now, maybe maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And, and that was actually what, what took it viral. So the phrase, I would, I would personally credit it to Aza Raskin, who actually wrote it on the whiteboard. But he wrote it on the whiteboard when we were thinking about how do we differentiate between the idea of your right to participate, your right to contribute, your right to be part of the, of, you know, of the sort of free speech environment in this technological infrastructure. And we can kind of come back to that in a second. Um, balanced against the unique things that this infrastructure has made possible. 
And so one of the challenges there is this question of everything is curated for you, right? I mean, you know this, whatever you know, the algorithm is going to uprank, we can just use the algorithm without getting into how much that glosses over, but just for the sake of like colloquialisms here. Um, yep. Curation algorithms, recommendation algorithms are constantly waiting and surfacing and deciding what to put at the top of someone's feed. And really interestingly, a lot of times the public processes this in their experience of it as I am being censored because my friends don't see all my posts. And at the time, back when we were having this conversation, how do we explain this differentiation between algorithmic curation and recommendations? How do we think about the ways to balance the equities of speech with also what was happening at the time, the kind of wild recommendations of the most popular content on the internet that oftentimes was not um, necessarily the, uh, <laughs> the kind of cream of the crop. And we can talk about that too, but it was specifically in the context of things like QAnon, right? How do we think about the fact that the recommendation engines are boosting and amplifying and recommending particular communities to people? And might there be a balance where those contributions are made, but the recommendation engines are not proactively pushing people into those communities that have perhaps more of a either connection to extremism or real world harm. Was that in fact a way to balance this trade-off by saying, post your content wherever you want, people can search for it and find it, but the recommendation engine is not gonna amplify it. It's not gonna proactively push it out to people. And you see that as censorship. I see that as trying to balance trade-offs almost in the way we would have like kind of, you know, time, place and manner restrictions in the real world. But how do we think about the unique things that recommendation engines and curation engines do differently in online speech? Well, so hold on. So it's censorship when it's done a certain way. So I, I wouldn't say that globally ranking feeds are censorship. I mean, I, if anyone who's looked at an, an unranked feed, like literally just a fire hose of all your friends posts, it's completely unintelligible, right? So right. people who say everything just, oh, just make everything reverse cron. I mean, I guess you could impose that by fiat and the nature of social networks would change, but I think it would be utterly unlike what we see today in which I follow, I don't know, 10,000 people and, and clearly I'm not seeing 10,000 people's posts and Twitter is hiding something. I mean, the other thing I would say, it's just funny how perception around this changes, right? Yeah. Like, for example, like Google, like, like, like if we're considering the question, like is filtering and ranking a free speech infringement, somehow Google never comes up in the conversation, even though the search engine serves the same function, right? If I, if I Google a thing and they've downranked something to like the 10th page, it's the same as not showing it to me in Twitter. I think there's some weird psychological trick going on where people like, they feel like an active agent in this information gathering, like they're entering yes. a query while, twi while Twitter is passive. You're just like doom scrolling. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing. If Google wants to make some piece of information disappear, it will. And if you compare like Google results to like DuckDuckGo or Bing, you'll see large discrepancies, particularly around hot button issues. Clearly they are tweaking the algorithm one way or the other. Um, so, but just to, that's a kind of a rabbit hole, but just to touch on one of your points, um, I don't know that I necessarily see it. One thing I think we agree on, and I push back it on your post because I think it's something that often comes up in these conversations. And I think it's kind of just, I wouldn't say it's even a straw man. I think it's just kind of a red herring. This business of absolute free speech, which nobody has anywhere, even in the US, which has pretty strong 1A protection, certainly stronger than Europe, it's still not absolute free speech, right? And I, and I don't think anybody reasonable who lives like in the real world is actually advocating for anything even approaching the 1A bound inside the social media platform. I think we all agree that, and I, and I made this point in, in my Substack response to your piece, that like, you know, everyone wants, obviously, you know, 
imminent lawless action. What is the hate speech bar in the U.S., which is like literally I think we should go and like go beat up this person. Like literally you're threatening to harm somebody and all the preludes to that. So doxing is obviously a prelude to like real violence. So that should obviously be banned. And then the next stage, I wish we had a whiteboard because like I, this right. doesn't come off or in an audio form. But like, so the base level, I think we all agree on like literally what is legal hate speech. Nobody wants on these platforms, right? Unless you're like some crazy 4chan or nobody actually wants this. Then there's a level above this, which is like, well, you know, pornography, which strictly speaking is legal on Twitter, but you only really find it if you accidentally search for a porn star's name and then suddenly oh shit there it is but you don't really tend to see a lot of spammy porn ultraviolet content like literally an isis video of a beheading you want gone most people want it gone and not only that it's usually pretty easy to tell what it is like the joke says it's hard to define pornography but you know when you see it and maybe there's edge cases but whatever like that's it's not really some big you know legalistic puzzle like what do we get rid of i think where we start getting into trouble is the level above that, right? When you get into the realm of things that are beyond that, like misinformation, disinformation, or, or when you say somebody should be an arbiter of truth and express a certain level of editorial gatekeeping as you would have had in a conventional newspaper. That I think is where the real disagreement begins. The interesting disagreement between what I'm calling very, very broadly for the sake of simplicity, the sort of Elon faction and the anti-Elon faction, which maybe you, 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 reject that characterization but anyhow that, that's where i think that's that's where i think the real exciting conversation is not not below that level yeah well i don't think i don't think it's um anti-elon um but uh just to you know i, I don't think it's a problem with the, uh, the the man himself so to speak you mentioned google and i thought that was interesting because way back in the day google search actually was kind of one of the first entities to take on this problem of what do you curate because per your point um you know People are going to search looking for actionable insights. You don't want to go searching for, you know, you have a new cancer diagnosis. You don't want to go and search and get a whole bunch of like juice fast shit and spam, right? And so Google actually recognizing that there were certain areas where they had to have a higher standard of care came up with this policy called your money or your life. And this dated back years. I want to say this might have been like 2012, 2013 that they first started rolling that out. And it said that there had to be kind of a higher standard of care in search results. So the sort of search quality engineers and the various people who review these things um, did have to pay attention to the, the kind of content that was showing up on your money or your life issues. And that was like finance and health and these things where you getting bad information would lead to you potentially taking an action that would harm yourself uh, or you know, in, in some way, right? And so there, there was this notion of harm and, I, and in, a, in a very tangible sense, not in like a, a loose kind of, you know, the, that, that term has a lot of different meanings, but just sticking with the, uh, the way in which I think both you and I primarily use it, um, there is something that actually could happen that is very, very bad if you go looking for information about banking and find scams or go looking for information about your diagnosis and get like, you know, quack woo-woo stuff, right? They didn't apply that policy to their other products. So they didn't apply it to YouTube. And there's something really interesting there, right? Which is YouTube is so participatory. It's user-generated content. It's people expressing themselves. They're putting out the things that they want to put out. And for a long time, that was treated just as entertainment. You were going to YouTube to be entertained. So, but if you had the cancer diagnosis, you were going to Google and that's where you were going to search. But then gradually you did start to see people using YouTube for this much more expanded purpose. And so there was this kind of period from around 20, you know, 2015 to 2018 
where people were doing that, but there was no kind of, let's call them maybe guardrail policies or guideline policies. And so it was kind of a free-for-all and it was just whatever was the most popular thing was what would get returned if you were going in with that same kind of cancer question and going and looking on YouTube. And so the platforms did gradually begin to try to apply this notion of harm to misinformation and we can hold disinformation aside. We can kind of talk about that. I think I, I see those two things as, as completely different, but um, the uh, terms have some scope creep and they get kind of blended together quite a bit. But on that, can, can, on that, can, sorry, can you define yeah. those, Renee? Sorry to interrupt. Can you define those two? Because I, I think I, I actually am a little bit confused about what they are. And I think maybe other people might be as well. Yeah, I'll just go with the, um, the you know, the, the academic definition then. So disinformation is uh, information that is deliberately spread with the intent to mislead. Um, it is not merely accidental, which is the connotation that misinformation is, is usually used for. Misinformation, something is wrong. Uh, disinformation, the person putting it out knows that it is false or misleading, but is doing it very deliberately with a kind of intent. So disinformation, usually when I'm using it, it's referring to uh, something where there is a, a, a deliberate intent to convince people of something that even the person spreading it knows to be false. So much more, I use that term more in the kind of state actor capacity or the kind of political machinations kind of dynamic. I, I see that as a little bit different. Misinformation is where you get all these, you know, these somebody is just inadvertently wrong on the internet. And oftentimes it's really just spread altruistically. People believe it. They want to share it. They think they're helping their community. They think they're informing their community. And so it gets shared. And so there's a very participatory, you know, dynamic there. People aren't just passive consumers of it the way that they were, you know, passive consumers of information, the way that we were in media environments past. Instead, we're all participating in creating stuff, which to your point is why I think people have such a um, kind of a visceral reaction to the idea that platforms would be moderating this in any way. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, right, it's it's not just a, a, a difference in genre, it's a difference in the actor kind of playing it off. Um, Okay. Um, interesting. So, sorry, I interrupted you with a definitional thing, but I think you were continuing your, your argument. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the argument was basically this question of as more, as more and more people over time turn to social media as the place to get that information, there's a question, which is, should something like the your money or your life policy apply to other areas? And this, I think, is, is, is one of those, those key underlying questions that's really underpinning this debate about speech and content moderation. Content moderation doesn't necessarily mean take it all down. It does mean that something like labeling or downranking or, you know, these other kind of um, actual tools that the content management teams have, content moderation, sorry, teams have to create, you know, that, that sort of framework that your money or your life is trying to get at, which is the idea of can you minimize actual harm through content moderation. And that is, I think, the one of the kind of central questions underpinning this debate today. Should it be a free-for-all? Should it be purely popularity-driven? Should it be, you know, whatever you see and whoever you follow is just what appears in your feed? Or do platforms have a responsibility in some way to create this kind of, uh, to, to follow this sort of harm reduction guiding principle that, that Google came up with back in the early 20-teens? When you say platform responsibility, I immediately think of Section 230 and Jeff Kossoff, who we had on the show like a week <laughs> yeah, or two ago. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a very reasonable voice, and his book on uh, anonymity actually is very good. Um, so here's okay. So I, I totally get it, and I think and I think you framed the conversation very well, Renee. And in, so it, so right, just to take it to the next level. Where I I sort of take issue with the content moderation side of things is that speaking at a very philosophical 
post bong rip sort of level. Like <laughs> it, it seems just epistemologically, it, it seems very difficult to actually implement that policy in anything like a reasonable way. I mean, even around empirical matters, like matters of like the actual physical universe, like respiratory viruses, for example, and, and leave aside, you know, metaphysical human social stuff like politics or what really did or didn't happen at the Battle of New Orleans in 1814 or whatever, right? It, it seems impossible to actually come up with some sort of oracle of truth that in a relatively unbiased way kind of does elect you know, the winner or a loser in the thing. Like I, I just, how do you do that? Particularly when we're, you know, we're in a complex world, we're in a convoluted world. It, it's difficult to even get at what is the truth of COVID transmissibility and the efficacy of masks, right? For a while, we flip-flop like crazy on what the quote-unquote science sort of thought about that. And, and you know, and I'm not that cynical about it. Like, I, you know, I still believe in science at all. I, I have science degrees. Like I'm not questioning sort of the science, but it, but particularly as someone who spent time inside a physics lab, for example, in the early days, a lot of things don't have an answer, right? Like a lot of these science, a lot of these science will think, oh, science is like, we just go to a book and get an answer. It's like, no, if you're at the cutting edge, there isn't an answer. You're you're at the hairy edge of uncertainty. It's not quite clear actually what the truth is. And so I I just wonder, what what do you do with that in in the real world? Yeah, I think that that is actually, in my opinion, the question, right? What do you do in, I wrote this thing for The Atlantic, which again, sorry, I'm going to give you the, like the geeky academic term, but it was like, what do you do when there's incomplete consensus or evolving consensus, right? And incomplete information. And I think that's really the question. And as we saw, the, you know, our institutions do not communicate at internet, you know, in internet-y ways, let's just say. They're not using things that are going to go viral. A lot of shit is locked in PDFs. You know, they're going to communicate at a press conference. They're going to communicate, and we saw this from the CDC over and over and over again, when they have reached a degree of consensus that they are comfortable with, as opposed to being very transparent and upfront with the public and saying, this is what we know right now. Now, I would argue that this is actually, again, when, when we get at a lot of the, um, the kind of tensions we're having around moderation and communication, it's just that the environment is different than it was in broadcast. There is this participatory dynamic, right? People are speaking to authority and institutions and, you know, they're not really hearing a whole lot back. You have people who, like Balaji and others, were very early to COVID, to the masking debate. And uh, Zainab is another one who was really kind of very prominent um, Jeremy Howard. I mean, I can think of probably like 10 or 12 different people from 2020 who really called it a lot earlier. You know, I was like, well, whatever, you know, I'm getting on a plane. It's fine. And they were like, wear a mask, you know, (laughs) Um, and they were right. Right. And meanwhile, the CDC was pointing back to guidance from SARS because they did not know they did not have enough data. They did not have enough findings. And so there was this kind of uh, this difference in certainty where they wanted to speak when they were certain, but the public was looking. And one of the interesting challenges, and this again, let's go back to kind of Google search, because I think it, it, it actually has some really interesting parallels, because there is still, I believe, a fairly high degree of trust in search engines in a way that there isn't in web content moderation. But Google search has this interesting problem called uh, the data void, right? Where if you search for something where the results just don't exist, the search engine can't return anything. And this would happen over and over again, unfortunately, in in moments like mass shootings, and it would return like 4chan because, you know, trolls over on 4chan were like 
putting out either Sam Hyde memes or the names of people that they were saying were responsible. And so Google search, which is supposed to be authoritative, people trust it, is serving up this crap as, you know, in these moments when people are kind of at their most anxious, their most concerned, where they really, really feel that they need information. And so this is where you see this, this kind of like temporal offset where people are speaking, people are putting out content. And so the question for the platforms becomes, how do you surface something and in the early days of COVID, the policy that was kind of put in place was that they would surface content from CDC and WHO. Well, what happens when those institutions aren't putting anything out? This is, again, where we have this challenge where they're trying to decide what to surface. How do you, how do you decouple expertise from institutions? And, and that, I think, that question of, of how do you know what to curate in those moments, particularly around something like a transmissible disease, right, where there is, again, like a pretty high stakes thing there, what is it that the platforms are supposed to do? And that's where that tension, you know, because of the various ways in which that was like handled badly by institutions on a communications front and handled badly by platforms on a, on a moderation front, you kind of create this cynicism that everyone is lying and no one knows what to believe. And the kind of crisis of trust continues to get worse. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the example you cited with Zainab, I think is a good one. For those who aren't familiar, Zainab uh, Tufechi, she, um, I actually, she was one of the first interviews I did for my Substack, actually way back, like early last year or even end of the previous year. And for those who don't know the story, you know, she's, she kind of made a name for herself actually as sort of a media commenter on the Arab Spring. She's a sociologist by training, actually an academic. And, um, you know, by her own admission, and she mentions this in her interview, like, she's not an epidemiologist. She, she's not a biologist. She doesn't actually know about, you know, COVID deep down, but she has a background in statistics and she started reading papers and realized that the conclusions that were being drawn were largely wrong, right? And that in many ways, she was early to call bullshit on a lot of the warnings about whether it was airborne and transmissible or not, right? And the reason why I think she's an interesting example, right? Because again, assuming, let's assume the maximal version of a sort of content moderation regime that I think you'd be a fan of in that world, people would be calling bullshit on Zainab and saying, well, who are you? Or I mean, for that matter, Balaji and saying, well, who are you? Like you're, you're, you're not an expert in this field. I don't know. You've got a platform that you seem to be using to raise these. Maybe you, maybe, maybe you should be not necessarily silenced, like literally, you know, gagged and like thrown into jail, but we should downrank your content such that you're not heard. And that's the end of it. Why are you saying that's a regime I would support? I, I just said the opposite. I, I wrote a whole Atlantic essay about the opposite too, saying that expertise and institutions need to be decoupled. That is in fact the entire point. The question is how do you curate? How does the platform right. know? Again, because when we talk about the algorithm um, between what to curate and what to recommend and that notion of harm, when you take those sort of inputs into account, what should the platforms be curating in that moment in your opinion? Should it be whoever gets the most retweets should it be the institutional expert? Like there's a, there's a complexity there. My view is that the first amendment, kind of like the second amendment is this weird insurance policy in which the founding fathers, if, if you take that originalist take on it said, yeah, it's going to suck. A lot of stupid shit is going to get said, but the alternative, which is 
some form, not, again, censorship is a very strong word, moderation, whatever you call it, isn't worth having. We, we, should, we should have the heckler also gets his soapbox, right? And we pay that insurance premium and you have idiots in the, in the public square who are shouting whatever because uh, every once in a while you're going to discover a Balaji or a Zeynep or you know, analogous figures in other controversies and they, and they will say the truth and, and it's worth having that. And the alternative regime, which is thinking that you can actually gatekeep content in some way and I, I mean, I think you're putting your finger on it. You're right. I, institutions have lost faith and expertise doesn't necessarily couple with, like, like I just said, Zeynep doesn't have a degree in biology. She's not right. a virologist, right? But that said, she was kind of right and, and, at, and at least a lot of consensus opinion at the time was wrong. So how, how do you resolve that? I suspect an in-the-world real content moderation regime would just say, I don't know, the CDC said X, Zeynep says Y, who the hell is Zeynep? Don Rag Zeynep, and that's the end of it. And, and I think that's, that's a very negative outcome. And I, I would prefer the reverse. I would prefer the CDC and, the, and Zeynep tweeting at each other. And, you know, truth, the truth will out at some point. Well, and I think that's a – so what you're hitting on there is actually a question of design, right? And, and again, I don't think we're actually disagreeing on this because I am not arguing um, – it, you know, it's funny enough, <laughs> I wound up having like at least one memorable back and forth with Zeynep where I was like, are you really sure about this? <laughs> um, and I was totally wrong, you know, and, and she was right. And, and, and it was because I was still inclined at that point to feel that the institution was probably correct. And that is, you know, my bias as somebody who is kind of generally speaking, um, I, I do believe that institutions serve a purpose. I believe that the country is where it is today in large part because of institutions. And I am actually like, you know, quite discouraged by, you know, what seems to be the, the collapse of institutions with not very much rising in their place. But that's a whole other podcast. I think on this, this question, though, nobody is saying that all of these voices shouldn't get to speak. I have not said that, like, you know, um, you know, colloidal silver babe 232 shouldn't be part of the conversation if they want to tweet, not, you know, knock yourself out. But the platform has to rank somehow. The quote-unquote algorithm has to rank somehow. It has to curate somehow. And what they started to do, what Twitter started to do, was actually to blue-check a bunch of doctors so that at least people knew that they were, in fact, actually doctors, right, as opposed to, um, you know, people pretending to be doctors or, you know, we can get into the bots at some other point. Um, but it tried to say, okay, again, where are the frontline experts who have a real role to play in this conversation, particularly because they are talking about what they're seeing night overnight, whereas the CDC is you know, not saying a whole lot at all right now. And so Twitter was, in fact, trying to find these authoritative voices and to surface them. One of the challenges is there is a ranking that is going to happen somewhere. And when it comes to something, per this other question about what do you do when something is actually wrong, right, where, where somebody is, is getting it wrong, I don't think it's so much a takedown regime. I don't, I have never in all, you know, all of our various years of fighting about this advocated for takedowns. I don't think they work. I think they're counterproductive. Per your point, I too would also prefer to see the, you know, the contributions if I were to go searching for them, if I wanted to go find the debate. So one of the questions is, how do you actually surface the debate? What is the design structure that you could use to point people, here's Zainab, here's the CDC, and here's you know, colloidal silver babe 232, right? You know, and how do you, uh, you know, are there ways to incorporate in things like 
fact checks or authoritativeness of sources or something else to create a more robust picture of the argument. I think the best thing on the internet for this today is actually Wikipedia, and I've written about that too over the years. I think it's just a design structure that lends itself better to like transparency, you know, visibility of the debate behind the scenes, and version control. And I don't think that Twitter necessarily does a good job of creating that kind of like deliberative visibility. Yeah, I mean, as a side note, I think it's interesting. One of the splits, so I talked to a lot of people who are like heterodox, indie, whatever, right? Or people who have like left big institutions. And it's, um, I think one of the big splits in our society you're kind of hinting at, which is you have either institutionalists who believe in institutions, right? However flawed they might be. And those who in some sense are inherently always counter-institution or insist on creating their own new institutions. I was just thinking of a journalist who, I won't go into more detail, but kind of well-known for leaving a big institution in a huff. And the more I talk to to them, I'll use the neutral them, um, the more I realize, like, you know, she didn't really hate the institution. She just kind of regretted the fact that she wasn't running it, right? Oh, sorry, I slipped my tongue. Anyhow, that they weren't running it, right? And it's like, oh, I see. So, like, you're not actually, like, a rebel, like a burn the building down thing. You just want to, you just wish you had the corner office and not this other person. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and I think if you look at somebody like Balaji, who I've talked to a lot, I know as a friend, he's been on the show several times. I think he is at heart an anti-institutionalist and in that he always, yeah. by default, sort of questions it and then tries to create a counter, right? Like, that's, Part of what makes Silicon Valley so amazing is that they sort of reflexively just reject whatever exists today and just create the alternative, even if it's not particularly better, just for the sake of doing it. So anyhow, yeah, it's it's um, so yeah, you're an institutionalist. You, you you've outed yourself as an institutionalist, Renee. Well, <laughs> it's never really been. I don't think it's really a secret. Yeah. <laughs> Might be a dirty word now, but look, I want you know, I want I want the um, I want public transit infrastructure. I want the garbage to go away. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I want my kids to be educated, you know, in a, ideally in a public school system so they don't have to pay yeah. a ton for it, right? I mean, yes, I am I'm guilty, totally. I, I do believe in institutions. Churches, hmm. you know, there's a, I, I, our society's built on institutions. And right now, you know, the extent to which the, you know, there's, the, there's this interesting dynamic, I think, um, that happens in contrarianism Twitter, which is the um, the institution did something wrong, ergo the institution has always been wrong, will always be wrong, is irredeemable, and right. we should hate it, right? And and I just I kind of reject that that pyrrhonism, that that you know that that extreme cynicism because I don't see short of creating a exciting moment on Twitter, I don't see where that gets us, and that's the um, that's the 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 challenge that I have when I look at the more um, you know again kind of contrarianism Twitter. I'm just like, what, what is it you want? Like, where, where do you want this to go? Right. Free speech to what end? You know, what, what, is the, what is the deliberative process that gets us to function again as a society? And, and that, I think, is one of, the, one of the real challenges that our so-called, you know, virtual public squares are, are just not, they're not meeting. They're not rising to the moment. I thought you were going to use the phrase common good, Renee, and then you're going to out yourself as, as, as a Catholic integralist. But you, you didn't go there. You, <laughs> did, you, you didn't say common good like for Mule. <laughs> no, um, I, am a, I am a confirmed Catholic, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, so the contrarian thing, in my opinion, really pissed me off in the context of the Ukraine thing. And you realize a lot of people that seem as if they were sort of independent thinkers were actually just contrarian assholes, right? And they, yeah. they will always just, you know, go against... I, I'm not a big believer in current thing theory, but it's a, shor- it's a good short 
version of what what's going on. They're kind of anti-current thing, but to me, that's just as like NPC as it is to be for the current thing. Right. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think um, so. Here, here's my grand theory of everything about this, Renee. And I think we've, <laughs> I think we've <laughs> talked about this at some point. And part of this was going to be the the second book idea that I kind of uh, wimped out on and went back to tech uh, before it actually happened. But you know, one of the things that's that. I think the the real underlying issue here, we scratch beneath the surface of the COVID thing, Roe v. Wade, like a, a bunch of issues of the day that that is clearly like a total collision of worldviews. Like it's people who fundamentally see the world either morally or in like or, or philosophically or even empirically, like how does the world actually work in fundamentally different ways. You know, if you think back, and we're both old enough to remember kind of the pre-internet age, right? Like we're the last bridge generation yes. that remembers letters <laughs> and phone calls and like answering machines. You get a you get a busy signal. You just couldn't talk to the person. There'd be no way to reach them, right? Well, in in that world, right, the the sort of common narratives that animated society, whether they be political, even scientific for that matter, whatever, kind of followed the contours of both language and region and political borders, such that to a greater or lesser extent, every society, every polity came up with a relatively self-consistent model of the world and could operate within it, right? And of course, you'd see cracks in that matrix. If you were bicultural, say, and raised in one, you know, two worlds at once, like I was kind of in Miami, or if, if you just, the example I always cite is go read an English language biography of Napoleon, and then go read a French language biography of Napoleon, right? And, you know, at this point, like everybody has the same starting materials, and you'll still get two very different stories. Now, there, you know, neither side is necessarily better, like the English in some sense is a little bit more detached and less hagiographic. On the other hand, they miss a lot of the, you know, the, the French character to it, and the French are the opposite, right? But it, it, it doesn't really matter. The point is, if you're an Englishman, you will have a certain vision implanted in your brain by your society of Napoleon, and that lets you navigate the world in a relatively non-destructive way, and the same thing in France. And I think the problem is that now we have colliding worlds in which there isn't this narrative consistency, and we've got these colliding sort of epistemological bubbles all the time and, and it's and it's agonized like nobody actually wants to go into the world and defend from first principles everything they think about the world all the time right <laughs> it's like it's like a horrible experience right and and there's no way of there's no way of reforging that cracked egg so to speak it's a convoluted metaphor and 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 until we actually like you know, until the until the singularity happens and we become fully transhumanist and we live in the federation of crypto states that Balaji wants and we only, you know, we, we only talk to people within our little block shield inside Twitter. Until that point arrives, we're going to be constantly colliding because, again, we I mean, again, I, I hate to turn this into like an abortion thing. But if you look at the Roe v. Wade debate, again, you clearly have two fundamentally different worldviews trying to like hash out a common political framework and failing. And I don't know, at some point, part of me wants to say, like, this is just this is just impossible. There's, there's, <laughs> there's no way to reconcile this. Well, Balaji and I used to debate this um, in the context of like, you remember the old exit versus voice talk? Like what year was that? God, that was like, is that 10 years ago now? Um, he gave this talk at, uh, at YC and it was called exit versus voice. And it was um, positing this like Silicon Valley's ultimate exit. Do you remember this? No, I, I don't. It sounds very Balaji, but I, I don't oh, recall yeah, the specific yeah, yeah. No, talk. This was, yeah. this was, it was actually sort of like my, um, my first exposure to, um, to kind of his thinking and funny enough we were in a shared online chat group at the time um and <laughs> i was like i sort of had a very viscerally negative reaction to it um you know and it was a debate group so that was fine you know, we could um we could debate these things and again funny enough just, just to give this like to kind of harp on this structural point for one more second twitter is the arena because you have people who are operating on there constantly 
in this factional mindset, right? You put your fucking emoji in bio and that's who you are. And I don't know if this happens to you, but like I see someone with a rose reply to me and I just steal myself for some kind of absolutely disastrous interaction <laughs> yep. entirely because of my preconceived notion of like what that emoji in bio like oftentimes means. And, and then I feel kind of almost embarrassed when the interactions are actually quite positive sometimes. But anyway, the, the thing that I was, the point I was going to make about this was um, Twitter is like, it's made for that. It's designed for that. People go and they, they search out a hashtag to go be upset over, right? You know, <laughs> they like hop into the trend and go fight. And that's a design thing. Whereas if you're on Facebook, you can actually be in a, a group, right? And you have, or this is kind of like, um, you know, we, um, we all do it on like WhatsApp groups now or signal groups where there's, there's a degree of trust. There's an expectation that even if you disagree with the person, you're kind of like bounded by the norms of this fairly established group. And even if you fight, you know, you're going to, you're all going to be in the same group again tomorrow. You're going to be fine. Right. And so I think it creates an environment where you actually can have heated, but deliberative conversation. You can act like your, your speech can be productive in some way. You can change your mind in a way that you don't have anyway. So going back to the exit versus voice thing, I was, um, I had moved to San Francisco and I was, I felt very strongly that we needed more voice, you know, <laughs> because I felt like San Francisco was going off the rails. And as much as we might think about like, you know, uploading ourselves to some virtualized, you know, metaverse in 10 years, right? Um, we had to actually be in San Francisco that day. And so for me, the need to restore the institution was actually quite paramount. And the better use of the, the tool and the, you know, the kind of um, Twitter as a tool for networked activism was actually, in fact, to create momentum around a vision for the institutions, a vision for reforming the institutions. And, you know, and so there was this kind of, I think, fundamental um, difference in alignment. But I do think that, you know, social media does have the potential to bring people together in this way in a much more kind of constructive space than the one that we presently have. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I think the whole like private signal WhatsApp group took off for me like right around 2016, I guess, roughly, is when I was in the first one with Noah Smith, and I think you, actually, um, and that was probably the first one back in the day, um, and it's clear that people are trying to call, yeah, I mean, that's something I've always thought about social media. It's literally the union of worse. On the one hand, it has all the good things of, like, private local community, you know, Dunbar's number, like, you know, the small little tribal set of humans that you can keep on top of, but then it has all the, like, the worst aspects of, like, textual culture. It's searchable. It's indexable. People take off the comments as if they were, like, written statements when, of course, they're not. Um, and so going to a private signal group get, gets rid of the, the sort of shitty part of the social media equation and does create community. And, you know, and I would say those groups are real community. They're as real as any other community. Um, so, yeah, I'm obviously not, like, totally bearish on technology, obviously. Um, but I, I don't know. I, you, know, you cite the SF example, and it's a good one. Recently, there's been a dose. I mean, you've you've left uh, you know the battlefield, as it were, but others have <laughs> stayed behind, and they they got the school board recalled, and they might get Chessa recalled, and there might be some sanity emerging in in San Francisco. But I don't know. At heart, I'm actually kind of a pessimist. I'm like, you have to find pockets. You have to find your own pocket that's acceptable to you, that's sane in Miami or Israel or signal groups or whatever, and that's some parts of the of of the Western of the Western construct are just going to be a total chaotic, unsavory, unpleasant mess for for the foreseeable future. But I, yeah, I'm a pessimist by nature, I guess. No, well, the, you know, this was the um, while back. I was like, what is the you know what does federalism look like in the digital age, right? And I think that no. that that is actually still kind of the question. Um, yeah. 
and you know, I, I, I feel like content moderation is part of it. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, the question is more of like a, a how, how to do it effectively, right? Um, but it is this question of you know, how do you have these different factions coexisting in a space? Because the alternative is the fragmentation, right? Is the the sort of like. Um, which uh, you seem actually kind of bullish on, though, right? Like, sorry, yeah, I know bullish. The uh, um, Web three will solve this kind of thing. To some extent, I mean, it'll be it, it'll be better than the world now. But again, you know, until we become you know beams of light or bits on a hard drive, you you still have the fragmentation problem that I think you're alluding to. That goes all the way back to that essay. Remember the essay about um, uh, like the urban archipelago, or whatever, by Dan Savage in like 2000 when the with the Bush Gore thing. Now we're going way back. Yes, and you know. Yes. I do. And he's the one who said, like, you know, there aren't blue states and red states. We have a, you know, we have a blue islands in this urban archipelago in a sea of red, which is true. I mean, to this day, that's exactly what it is, right? I mean, if you go to California, everyone thinks it's a blue state. Actually, you drive outside of three cities, and it's about as red as Red yeah. County, Nevada that I'm in now. <laughs> it's not blue at all. And so it's both good and bad. On the one hand, you're never really going to have a civil war situation again, where you can actually neatly divide the country into warring factions. On the other hand, that's also the downside, right? The, the, the peaceful version of that, which is federalism saying, look, we just fundamentally disagree about this issue. You do it your way on your side of the border. I do it on my way, my side of the border. That's also kind of impossible, right? And there's no solution that way either. So what do you think is the the way that things go after the uh, the Twitter takeover is complete? Like, what do you think is actually going to change? Oh, yeah. No, I, oh, good. I meant to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I, I think you ran down the list of a lot of the proposals that people have, have floated, Elon and David Sachs. One of them is about the algorithmic transparency, which I think it sounds nice, but it actually won't do much of anything. <laughs> I, I think we agree on this. As anyone who's actually worked with any machine learning at any level of sophistication, the algorithm itself isn't actually that important. I mean, it's it's better to know it versus not, but like what do you do with that, right? Like, say the Twitter algo is literally as simple as like 1.7 times number of likes plus whatever, 5.7 times the, you know, the, the, the strength of, of, of the edge between you and the person tweeting it, right? Like, let's say we know that. Now what? Do you have strong opinions on whether that factor should be 5.8 versus 5.7? You have no idea, right? An algorithm without the data, right? Because the question you would ask yourself, which is a legitimate one, is like, okay, does the Twitter algorithm, for example, favor conservative versus liberal content? Or does it downrank, I don't know, minority speech versus white progressive? Any question you would ask, the only answer you would have is by actually looking at Twitter's data and doing, you know, hold out A-B tests, like, Companies like Facebook have these massively complex iterative in infrastructures to do just that. Like I tweak one factor and let's see what the impact is because there's no way to just look at the algo and say, oh, this is, this is what it does. So I think the transparency thing is just like, it's not going to, it's not going to do anything. And so I, I don't know. I, what do you think this, I mean, if, 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 if Elon came and said, Renee, that's it, you're, you're, <laughs> you're the public policy head of Twitter, what would be like your three or four point plan? Like as for starters. I actually do think transparency is important. I don't think open source the algorithm does it, and I don't think I don't think it um, I don't think it gets at what people want to know. Per your point, I, I do think, you know, there was a there was a Senate hearing yesterday, Senate Judiciary Committee, and I was following it pretty closely. You know, a couple of my colleagues testified, but um, but what I was interested in was this idea of um, we are. <laughs> I, I kind of joke around about it, call it like vibes based analytics, right? where people become convinced that something is true on the internet because of like vibes in their particular faction of the internet, um, even if there is no actual evidential basis for making the claim. And so this question of, you know, 
does transparency help us move beyond that? I think the answer could very well be yes. I think at a minimum, you could do research that looked at, you know, to, that assessed these questions about uh, various forms of bias and things. There was a, you know, Twitter has an internal team that, in my opinion, actually does a really good job with transparency to some extent at this point, where it says, like, we're trying this technological intervention, right? Um, we're thinking about, like, you know, there's this nudge where if you type some obscenity at somebody, it, it's, it sends you a little, like, pop-up and is like, most people on Twitter don't talk like that, you know? Um, or if you go to retweet something without clicking on the uh, URL, it's like, do you want to read it first? You know? um, so there's ways in which, again, some people would see that as paternalism. Twitter has this initiative called Healthy Conversations. Facebook calls it Meaningful Social Interaction. You know, Google has its own name for it that I don't remember right now. But ultimately, there's this question of how do you create something positive? And I do think transparency is foundational to that because it at least lets you get a sense of... Uh, of what's going on. So whether that's researcher access or civil society access or kind of, um, you know, I, I just don't think open sourcing the algorithm is going to do a whole lot. I also think investing in something like Blue Sky, where there is more, uh, you know, is this um, kind of federated model that Twitter itself, I believe, started and funded. So this question of um, does decentralization do anything? I think it's an interesting experiment. Um, on the, you know, on the content moderation front, I don't have a problem with moderation policies that try to minimize harassment. I think that one of the challenges, though, is that you can write the best policy in the world, and if your enforcement is garbage, um, or if your enforcement is perceived as being like wildly unequal, again, even if it's vibes, you know, <laughs> transparency maybe fixes the vibes problem. But if your if your enforcement is actually uh, unequal, or you know, or um, not. Um, you know, if you're not applying the same um, policy fairly because of either the moderator is doing something wrong or the AI is, is skewed a particular direction, then there's a lack of legitimacy to the policy, right? The people who are kind of subject to the policy feel it's illegitimate. And in a really funny way, I, I actually think that the best way to address something like that is to do something kind of like what Facebook did with the oversight board. And I know that, you know, a lot of people, a lot of friends of mine think the oversight board is terrible. They think it's largely a joke. My opinion is, is more positive, if only because it creates that deliberative body that does some kind of oversight, and not only oversight at like the case level, but oversight at the policy level. And it at least gives some feedback where it says, this seems to be overly heavy-handed. This content came down, and it should have stayed up. And so I think that that kind of strikes a balance between... I, I No moderation would be a terrible experience, and overly moderated censorious is also a bad experience. And so what is the, you know, what is the middle ground there? What is, what is the way in which we create some side of, you know, some kind of internet governance that is seen as legitimate by the people who are experiencing it? Well, I, I think part of the problem, right, if you listen to conservatives complain about this, and they're not, I mean, I mean part of their complaints about them getting censored on online are, are often bogus, right? Because the classic example is like Ben Shapiro, who's completely taken over Facebook and does very well there. And so if, if Facebook is trying to censor Ben Shapiro, they're doing a, a rather poor job of it because <laughs> he's getting more engagement than like all the, all the networks combined. So I think a, a lot of the criticisms there may be misplaced. On the other hand, it is true that most tech companies skew heavily left-wing. If you look at political donations, the rhetoric from people who work there, et cetera. And so if, if you did have a Supreme Court of Facebook, which to me is a horrifying thought, by the way, that not- You don't like the oversight board? No, no. I okay, think no. Okay. I think it's a terrible- I mean, and I say this to somebody who's like, 
worked at Facebook and I, one of the things I worked on was even in a moderation capacity for the ad system, I, I think, I mean, the ads is a whole different thing. Ads is not, I think, as touchy as regular free speech. I think it's a ter- I, I think it's a terrible thought that a company like Facebook, behind closed doors in a completely unaccountable way, decides what gets amplified in the American discourse. Yes, I think it's a it's a horrifying thought, and it it shouldn't be the case. Which is why I would argue for the slimmest content moderation regime possible, which is that sort of you know dick pics and beheading videos level that I that I described earlier. I wouldn't right, go beyond also, that because I just you... won't trust it. Yeah. But what you just Sorry, said there is like what gets amplified and what doesn't, right? And that, that gets at this curation and ranking problem, right? The thing that we were talking about in the beginning. This is where like, quote unquote, the algorithm comes into play. Something is going to be at the top of your feed and they keep, you know, they tweak it constantly, like what it is and how it's sorted. The only policy that I've seen or the only proposal I should say that I've seen in the moderation front that moves beyond that, um, again, holding transparency aside, is middleware, right? And that's this argument that, and this, I think, is where Blue Sky is kind of going. This argument that you should have greater control over your feed um, through, like, sliders, right? Where you say, like, I want to see more of this kind of thing or more of that kind of thing. Excuse me. And the people get a little bit more kind of in control of the algorithm. And that's the kind of the only other area of policy I've seen. Again, there's various pros and cons to that. But the Oversight Board, just to clarify, they, they put their kind of, like, um, findings out publicly, so I don't know if we're talking about the same thing, but I don't mean like some internal secret body. I mean the actual like, um, quote unquote, judiciary, the Facebook Supreme Court, which does actually report out uh, what it found and when in the form of like almost like Supreme Court you know, decisions. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So I was referring. Yes, you're right. I was not referring to the oversight board. I was referring. I, I still remember this. Um, I think it was either Rolling Stone or Harper's piece by a reporter who managed to actually get Facebook people on record. And I forget who the VP was in charge of it, but basically there is a closed door meeting in which they review a lot of the content moderation. At least this was true two or three years ago. Maybe it's different now. And, you know, they, they basically adjudicate in almost a Supreme Court like manner, what is or isn't in violation of this, what has become this super thick manual of, of ad policy review. So that's what I was referring to. But I, I think, you know, it might be worth expanding on what you're calling the blue sky thing. I, I think people may not be so familiar with that. Um, I'm going to channel my, my crypto web three friends that I've talked to this about. So just to make that clear for everyone, what that means is, so in, in the web three crypto version of this, right? Like you go, and there's already initial versions of this. I mean, I've, I've been a beta tester for some of them. You, you know, you go and you tweet and it basically exists on the blockchain in some form, right? And so it, it's almost like, Again, all of Web3 is trying to get back to a Web1 model, right? It's like you can't get kicked off email because there's like a common email protocol that everyone implements. And if one email provider doesn't like you, you can always use another one and still send email, right? So Web3 is trying to recreate that through this clever thing called the blockchain. It doesn't really matter what it is now. The idea being is that you've separated out the sort of application layer, like the thing that you see and interact with, with the core ground truth that is like the tweet or post or the social media thing. So what does that mean at the end, right? What it means is anybody can tweet whatever the hell they want, more or less, again, within the realm of probably American like hate speech law, right? But if, if, you know, if you want a world in which Trump doesn't exist or the entire right wing doesn't exist, <laughs> right? You can get it. You can just get effectively a left wing Twitter, right? And like the right wing people aren't excluded, right? They're just operating in a different, in a different space than you are. And if you want, if, I don't know, if you love the political fray and you want literally the most negative, hostile content possible, you can move that slider and get that. Or if you want your own private Twitter with like the 100 friends you follow and nobody else, you can get that too, right? And in some sense, 
you facilitate it like it's almost like the virtual version of the split that we said couldn't happen. Like again, we couldn't have a tw- we couldn't have a civil war because there's nowhere you could draw the line between north and south. What this is doing is basically saying we're drawing the line between hostile camps and giving you the illusion that the other camp doesn't exist, so that you can happily live inside your little epistemological bubble and we don't all kill each other and can more or less the train still run on time, right? Like that's the web, and it's kind of a cope, and it is, but that's yes, kind of is. the that's that's the web three cope. To when I sort of semi ironically say web three fixes this, that's that's the quote unquote fix that that I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I know. I just find that so depressing. <laughs> I get it. I really do. I just, I, I just feel like it's like, I feel like it's such a capitulation, man. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, it is. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, so neck as a slight plug and also just as a comment, I'm, uh, I'm interviewing uh, Dryden Brown of the Praxis Society. I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with them, but their whole thing is creating like charter cities and charter states. There's like a bunch of startups that have like raised money, like that are real going concerns that are trying to create like real communities that are kind of decoupled from the standard like nation state, you know, post-Westphalian, post-Napoleon nation state concept. They're kind of checking out of it <laughs> or at least want to. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I agree. It's it's. It's kind of depressing. On the other hand, I think a lot of assumptions that we have from our post-Enlightenment period will fall away with the Internet. And I think the, the nation state might unfortunately be one of them. But, but I think the question is still, you know, per, you know, you visited Ukraine recently, right? There is yeah. still a, um, in the real world, <laughs> yeah. there are things that happen, right? That you have to be able to come together around. And if you spend all of your time in some epistemological bubble, it's the, um, I used to kind of joke around about this as like the tornado problem, right? Where, yeah, there's like social construction of reality and that's all fine and good and everybody can kind of have their their space where their reality is, is, is prevalent. But then there's the tornado that just doesn't give a shit if you believe in it or not right. or, you know, how you feel about tornadoes. And so you do have to come together to, you know, to, to deal with the fact that that's going to happen. And that's the... I, I keep wondering if, you know, we spend all of our time online and the solution, quote unquote, is like not federalism, but, you know, but, but full on kind of mental retreat, then what do you do in the, in the tornado moments? And it seems increasingly likely that there will be many of those. And, and that's the part that I, I, you know, where I get it, I, you know, I, I understand what people are looking for. I just kind of wish that, um, that there were more ways to, you know, to, to create some kind of consensus or, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good point, right? At some point, there is some outward reality. That's why I was kind of so hostile to the whole Ukraine is the current thing formulation, just to deviate just slightly, because it's like the, the current thing encapsulates, you know, the, the reality of a society of spectacle in which these fake things happen online and we get very angry about them, but, but nothing is really happening, right? And that's, that's not true in Ukraine. There's thousands of civilians dying, right? There's literally 10 million refugees who have fled. Like, it's, it's, it's as real as it gets. <laughs> it is not some online spectacle. And to, to parse it as an online spectacle is to take literally the most cynical and nihilistic view on what is kind of a human tragedy, right? So I, I, I totally get that reality is still out there. But, you know, it's funny, as much as I am supportive of Ukraine and the whole thing, having visited there, it, it did feel like a time warp to a previous, like everyone's, everyone, even the Europeans are like, man, this is like World War II all over again. Like, like nothing, nothing in the Western experience has, has seen, you know, mothers and children fleeing on foot, mass death, cities getting bombed, like the, the horror of all that. Nobody in the West has seen in 70 or 80 years. And so you're right that the Ukraine thing is real. And like, who knows, it could happen in our realm of life. But it just seems, 
it seems like you've you stepped in a time machine. And and the reality might be that once you get to a certain level of material prosperity and a certain level of health for most people, then maybe I don't know the the real thing kind of falls away at some point, and we create these illusions of struggles to keep us entertained, but they don't really matter. And I don't know. Uh, it's it, it, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a good point. I I don't know. It, I mean, certainly it didn't work with COVID, right? COVID was a very real thing, and we didn't exactly seem to do that well, other than the science side of it. Right? We got a vaccine out super quickly, but everything else was like a total shit show. <laughs> and <laughs> and I mean, yeah. And what if there is a catastrophe that is, comp- you know, what what the Russian invasion is to Ukrainian, which is like a total society stopping catastrophe? What if that actually happened to the better part of the U.S. or the West, like? Yeah, maybe we would find ourselves supremely unprepared. Yeah. Sorry, that's like still fucking depressing for a Friday. I don't, I don't know how we got here, Renee. Crack open it's a beer or something. Beer Make it happen. It's beer time. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe I should take some questions at this point since we managed to make everyone, um, you know, need a, an SSRI prescription after this <laughs> conversation. So if anyone has any questions for Renee, uh, by all means, um, there it is. We've got... Uh, How do we've I got, see this? I can't see I, anything. I, I, oh, you don't see it, like, below your little avatar? You don't see, oh, like... Oh, is that... Um, I see Lance with a lady. There we go. Yeah, Lance. Lance. Okay. Lance, you are on the microphone. Lance, the mute button's on your lower right. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah, I was just on another call in with, uh, with Milton, somebody interesting, kind of a conservative economist. So I had a lot of back and forth. I'm like Vinny from the uh, my cousin Vinny. I just want to argue. I agree with you. It's no fun. But I just, just, just therefore, I just, just, just joined. But I guess I'll just get you, Sheila's, uh, I mean, Renee, Sheila was another speaker on the other one. Renee's comment, comments on this. Billionaires, they're not on your side. To become a millionaire... There has to be a certain pretty strong dose of cruelty and greed and, 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 and willingness to lie and willingness to do a lot of pretty shady things. You just don't get to be a billionaire. And if you inherit it, I guess you could be one of these like kids that gets to be outcasts, right? The, the, the black sheep who won't play the game. Isn't Elon Musk's brother? Cause they were super uber rich. I don't know if his parents are still alive, but his brother's got cobble hat, you know, solar, and maybe he's a true socialist. But unless you inherit it, which is even then rare, cause you still have to kind of accept it. But these people, Oprah, any of these people, they have to be a very strong level of ruthlessness and greed and willing to step on people to get there. Yeah, they just do, <laughs> you know? I don't think there's any other way to say it. And so I'm not real keen on billionaires, regardless of their politics. I don't care how, whether it's George Soros or Tom Steyer or the Koch brothers. I don't want any of them running the show uh, in any level. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think Lance is channeling a lot of sentiment around Elon is like, yeah, why is our media in the hands of billionaires? Of course, it's kind of funny when it comes from Washington Post reporters whose publication is owned by another billionaire. But leaving that little jibe aside. Um, oh, my God. This the, the first, but, second, third, and 15th. That's not how they worded it. They left out number two. I guess because he's Avis and he has to try harder. That was so hilarious. The, the, the lack of ironic self, self-own there is just priceless, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But but I, I think you are putting your finger on something interesting. And I think Renee was also, to, I think, getting into this. And it reminds me of a question I wanted to ask you, Renee, which is like, if Twitter isn't the public square, what is? I think it is. But I guess the issue is that when we think of public square, we have this Norman Rockwell vision of, of like literally Main Street and somebody saying a thing and somehow, you know, society supporting that. And it's not necessarily owned by anybody, but um, just 
the na- the nature of technology and capitalism is that that town square, the physical town square, doesn't matter anymore. And yeah, if Twitter isn't the public square, Renee, like what is? And yeah, should it be owned by billionaires? I guess just to channel Lance's comment. <laughs> could, a I go, bit. Could, I, could I throw ten more seconds in and then I'll mute? Here it is. Here's the answer, as far as I'm concerned. Got to be co- a public utility. Number one, treat it as such. Number two, you got to public algorithm we want to know every ounce of your algorithm of exactly what you're up to and how you're channeling the info those two things will solve the problem greatly i think so the thing that i wrote for the atlantic was um was picking a different metaphor right i was saying it's not the public square it's the gladiatorial arena and what i meant by that at the time and still do is just it's just not structured in the way that maybe you know you can call it norman rockwellian if you want to i think about it more as um are the particularly because of the way that public square was married to no content moderation in the in the conversational zeitgeist when I was writing this, um, I was arguing that I don't think that this this idyllic version of a public square in which everyone was just speaking freely at all times and there was no quote unquote moderation in the real world that was where I was getting at the like time place and manner restrictions piece part part of the uh, part of the piece so I was saying Twitter is structured a little bit more like an arena in that it is where you go to fight with people. I don't know how many people pull up their phones, you know, uh, you know, pull up their app on their, on their phone and are like, I'm coming to Twitter for <laughs> a nice, calm, deliberative conversation right now in which I will learn many things. Um, maybe that's just, again, uh, one thing that's kind of remarkable about Elon's priorities is that they are in a way the priorities of a very, very, very large follower account. And I was thinking about this after the piece came out, where I was like, why, why are these the thing? Why do people think the bots matter? The bots don't matter as much. They almost not at all compared to where they were in 2015. But if you're a massive account and you know spammers are trying to draft in your replies or impersonating you for crypto scams, then of course you have the perception that the bots are a really big deal. Right. And so it, it just got me thinking about what is my experience of Twitter? Maybe it's disproportionately an arena for me because that's the experience that I've curated. So there is, you know, is that just my bias, my experience? Possibly. But what is the public square? I mean, that is a really interesting question. I, I think potentially it could be, but I don't think that it, I don't think that most people would say that that's how it feels for them now. And again, I don't think most people think about their public square. Mentally, I always envision Union Square, right, where there's some protests going on in one corner and then there's some like drummers in another corner and then there's people selling things in another corner. And it's like just kind of a it's still a generally pleasant experience. Um, maybe Twitter gets that way. I, I don't think abolishing content moderation is how that happens, though. OK, so here's one thing I, I, I do object about. And I think I, I addressed this in my in my reply to your piece. Um, and, and, and I think it's very common in discussions of this free speech thing when you say, oh, this isn't a public square. It's funny, Yishan Wong, who, uh, former Facebooker, former CEO of Reddit, he also had a very interesting uh, thread. Yeah, yeah, which I was actually going to include in my original Substack, but it got too long and I had to publish it, so I, I didn't include it. He has a long thread, which is very good about this. But one thing he mentions, I think, is very similar to what you're saying, which is, oh, you know, this isn't debate. And I think he even included like a oil painting of like Lincoln-Douglas debate, the famous debate, <laughs> right, that Lincoln had before he became president. And, you know, my objection to that is that debate, it's never been that way. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you go back and read the history of the early founding fathers, and, and I made this point in that Wired piece in which, in which I said Ben Franklin would have been like an anon account ship poster with like 50 alts and a sub stack and followed no journalistic standards and literally attacking people left and right. And it, it's just odd to me that 
I, I think a lot here's a here's a here's a theory I have. I think a lot of our thinking around how Twitter should behave is kind of a hangover or a residue from what American journalism has been in the past 60, 70 years, which has been an ad-supported business model. And American journalism supports the sort of objective both sides type feeling to it. Fact-checking is important. Sourcing is important. There's this quest for capital T truth and the thought that we can actually capture it in journalism. And in case like it sounds like I'm making a trite point, in, in earlier parts of American history, or even in Europe right now, that's not how journalism works at all, right? You go, you go to Europe, like say Spain, right? Or a micro part of Spain like, Catalu- like uh, Catalonia, which has all these political turmoil going on, right? Every newspaper has a different form of truth. Nobody claims to have any sort of capital T truth. If, if you want an overarching view of truth, and I used to do this. I used to live in Barcelona when I was writing Chaos Monkeys, and I'd go to this cafe, and they'd have four or five newspapers like there, some of them in Catalan, some of them in Spanish. You read three or four of them. You kind of get a picture of what's going on. None of them are fact-checked. None of them came to be objective. You couldn't content moderate any of it, Right. Um, and so I think a lot of our think we want Twitter to behave like what we think the New York Times should have been in the past, right? And I and I think I, I just I don't I, that, I don't think that's possible because it's a fundamentally different construct. And even the public square metaphor fails because again, if you look back at the times of the founding fathers or 19th century American politics, the, the public square was always a gladiatorial arena. It was always a total food fight. It was I think I called it a bare knuckle brawl inside a food fight in the middle of a jeering crowd, which is traditionally. How journal? I mean, look at H.L. Mencken back in the day, some of the greatest mm-hmm. journalism that we've written. So I, I guess I just don't understand what's the problem with the public square being a gladiatorial arena? What, how, how does it not jibe with our country's history? Oh, I think, well, this is where you get into the whole debate about cancel culture, right? And, and, and I think that people are, I think that the chilling effect that Twitter has comes, which is, I think, misconstrued as like people trying to silence speech is that as they try to balance the speech piece with the harassment piece, with the perception that if you speak out, some angry mob is going to find you, the idea of the main character, I think, is um, the idea of the, <laughs> the hourly main character, right? The constant cycling, the crowdsourced two minutes hate, right, is, is very much something um, that touches people in an extremely direct, visceral way, in a way that didn't happen to quite that extent in the town square. And this was, again, this kind of time, place, manner thing. I said in my essay, I was like, um, you know, go grab a megaphone and follow someone around screaming that they're a pedophile in the middle of the town square and, you know, see, see what happens, right? There are, that is not how, um, how people expect people to, to carry out, um, you know, to, to behave in public, right? And so there is this question. I'm not arguing that the, I think that the information debate and the concern about the harassment mobs are two separate things. And I think that people's processing of the free speech conversation is very much viewed through their perception of how likely they are to be harassed. And that's or the perception that their friends or family or colleagues or political, uh, you know, allies or what have you are going to be harassed. And that, I think, is one of the interesting things per the conversation about like the Rosen bio faction. Sorry, not Rosen bio, emoji and bio <laughs> revealing my bias there again. Um, but the uh, ways in which you're going to have an experience of, of you saying something and a, and a mob of people kind of descending on you. The, the public square as the place where the roving mob is constantly waiting to pounce. So I think that is in the mental model that people have of Twitter and where that, um, that debate about is this the public square and could it be is actually that question of how do you, how do you balance the, uh, the kind of debate side with the, the harassment side. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a good point, the mob debate. I, I think a, a key part of this whole cancellation debate, and it's funny, I, I'm doing a thing with the fire... Uh, here's another self-plug. I'm doing a thing with Greg Lukianoff and the Fire Foundation next week about cancellation and all this stuff. Um, I'll include details about it later. But um, the, the key thing to the cancellation that I think, as someone, I guess, who's been sort of canceled, I mean, it's not even clear anymore what, what it means to get canceled, but the, cancellation only exists when one side or one political philosophy has so taken over every institution of society that you can be canceled, right? Because otherwise, it's just somebody got pissed off at you on Twitter, in which case, like, well, okay, that's maybe not pleasant, but like, who cares? Like, nothing about your life changes. But if, if a bunch of people get pissed off at you on Twitter, and your kids can't go to school, and you lose your livelihood, and you are blackballed from all of society, then it's a, then it's a completely different beast, right? And I think that's a problem that we're having this conversation inside a world in which a certain worldview and a certain politics has taken over almost every aspect of life such that cancellation is even a thing you can think about. And one last comment, just to comment on your second thing about harassment. I mean, I, again, I think the harassment thing is, is definitely real. I think it's funny. I think I, I've escaped a lot of harassment. You've probably gotten way more than of it than I ever have. Like I often see like DMS that people send me. I'm like horrified, like, Oh my God, <laughs> how depressing. Like this has never happened. I've gotten very little harassment over, I have to say. So maybe I'm slightly insensitive to it, but it, it's still the case that like, like the words or violence people can rapidly turn what is just criticism into quote unquote harassment. And if you go down that very slippery slope, then it be, you know you, you end up in gamergate territory where literally anything you say is offensive and therefore should be shut down according to some moral rubric and everything you know it becomes a circular firing squad all, all over again i i don't think that it's an easy question i mean i think that there have been um there have been times you know i don't hit the report button very often because i <laughs> i largely consider it a waste of time and i'm actually just fine with the block button myself but the, but that, but that's only because you know there's like there's kind of like a baseline, right? But again, when you become the main character, that experience changes quite instantly, and you know perhaps not because of anything that you actually did, right? That's one of the other um, you know the sort of uh, times that we see that happen on Twitter, and 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 everybody's kind of um, kind of horrified, but it does have life-altering impact for that person at times. They might not lose their job, but all of a sudden they feel like they have to leave their home or something and, you know, or there's a, uh, you know, a credible threat. And this is where, again, you know, First Amendment um, as the delineator, that question of incitement and, and um, how uh, immediate it is, I think is, is one of the areas where the, you know, you want to maintain the spirit of the law while recognizing perhaps the, you know, changes to the structure. And so I, I don't think that we have necessarily got it right yet, but I, I do think that there's... Um, some interesting balance to uh, to keep trying to strike here. I'm going to sound like a redneck for a second and quote like the signature that you see in some like gun forums of like, if the First Amendment doesn't work, the Second Amendment will <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> when it comes to in-person in harassment. But, uh, you know, I'm saying that as uh, LARPing as a red state redneck here in uh, northern Nevada, which is where I'm talking to you from. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary. I, I, so as someone who was momentarily that person, right, because of the Apple thing, it was... Um, you know, I've been in the center of attention before because of the book and stuff. So it wasn't like completely out of the blue. It wasn't like some hairdresser who suddenly was the Twitter person or something. Um, but even then, like the, the amount of negative sentiment I received was actually very small. I think I got – there was like thousands of messages I got from everyone from J.D. Vance to just random people. And I, I think out of all of it, a total of two were like negative and like – 
you know, like, fuck you, go fuck yourself, like literally two out of thousands. And I have to say, even just those two kind of bummed me out a little bit. <laughs> I was like, that's so, why would you say that? Um, but in any case, um, yeah, I don't know. I, fortunately, again, I've never really caught, and I think that, you know, that's part of why I reflexively don't jump into these culture war issues as much as maybe other people do, because I don't think I'd be able to handle it without like driving myself to alcoholism or something like it would just, it would be too much to handle. I don't know. You've been in the middle of these messes, right? You got into the whole Vax thing for a while and it's, it, it, but you loved it. I remember I asked you about it. You enjoy the fray. You like getting into the middle of it and mixing it up with people online. Admit it, Renee. You I, like the, you, know, you I, like it. Again, I like, I like the fight and I like the debate. I don't shy away from it. I feel like it's just, again, my, my personality, but there was a moment when, you know, some asshole went and like, I used to have a little blog. It was a Tumblr blog from back in the day and it was all about like crap crafting and making things and cooking and like just, you know, my little like hobbies. Right. Um, and, uh, I, my first baby was, um, was really young at the time. He was about year, year and a half old. And, and I did, I did get involved in the, uh, you know, the pro vaccine conversation. And this was again, fighting back against the like autism, you know, autism, MMR truthers and stuff like that. And so I was perfectly happy to like to be in it, but then somebody really crossed a line and they went and they found a picture of, um, it was Halloween. I was at Disneyland and it was the year that movie Maleficent came out. And I went as Maleficent and the baby was the crow, right? And so it was just a cute picture of like me and my kid. And I had made the costume and I was excited about it. And that turned into somebody grabbing it and like repeatedly using that picture of my kid and like throwing it into harassment hashtags and being like, um, this woman is a devil worshiper and she abuses her baby and all kinds of other shit that kind of went down that path. Right. And I'm like, and I'm looking at it and I'm like, it's fucking Maleficent. These idiots never seen a Disney movie, but I got so much shit <laughs> from the internet for that. And I was like, okay, block, 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 block. Um, but then I had this really bizarre experience happen where I was like, okay, how do I um, get this? I, you know, I was filing um, Twitter complaints saying that it was a, a private photo. It was a personal photo. And the response I got back and, uh, you know, was like, well, you're not naked in it, basically. <laughs> oh, God. And so I was like, really? So that's the fucking line? Like, I'm saying, like, I would like my child's image taken down off this platform, and, and, I, and I have no recourse here. And I thought, what a, what a really strange world we live in, where if, like, you could see my boobs, I could get it taken down, but I couldn't get it taken down in the way that it was being used to, to harass and intimidate um, and to, you know, to like it wound up, um, you know, I got these like these lunatics, you know, the usual um, people who then kind of went on to become QAnon people down the road. Um, and it was like a little bit jarring. I mean, per your point, I, I don't really worry so much about the um, the in-home safety. I do feel like most of the time that kind of stuff just stays on the Internet, but it only takes one nut. And yeah. And it was like, it was definitely kind of a jarring experience. And it does make me think, you know, I, I do have a lot of empathy when that kind of thing happens. And again, this question of why is your freedom of speech include grabbing a picture of my kid and harassing me with it and you know, trying to intimidate me out of the conversation. And that's the dynamic also in the, in the debate, um, you know, to kind of touch on the debate angle here. Freedom of speech can be used to intimidate other people out of conversations. And so that line, that harassment line, which is admittedly very, very blurry and, you know, enforcement, moderation enforcement makes the wrong calls on a regular basis. Uh, but at the same time, feeling that your right to harass me with pictures of my own children to try to make me shut up by creating this creepiness factor that makes me think like, well, should I should get off this platform? That's not a healthy public square. <laughs> right. So. 
Interesting. Is Maleficent is that the one? Is that the one where you're like with this thing with like these black horns on your yeah, head or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, black horns. Now, yeah, I had it as my Facebook profile. You know. Right, right, right. It was. I was about to say. I remember, I've seen that photo in your WhatsApp or something. That's the. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, and then of course one route to go right is like just making it illegal, right? Like I, I understand there's like revenge porn legislation. I think in most states now, like you literally, like you will go to jail if you actually post, you know revenge porn type stuff like literally you and then that i'm sure that probably shuts it down very quickly at least i remember when it first happened right like there was i remember there used to be like some super skeezy guy who would like kind of like extort you and the, you know there was like a website where they would actually publish it and then he would go to the person and like try to extort them and hey if you give me 500 bucks i'll take it down and then of course the law caught up with him and he went to jail and then i think that's where a lot of the revenge porn stuff sort of happened and so in any case i guess um yeah, I mean, if you just make it illegal, and then, <laughs> and it'll very quickly stop sort of being a thing. Um, well, and so. I don't think the laws really caught up with, um, you know, with the new infrastructure, right? And that there's always like a lag there, and there's a question of like, you know, there okay, there's a new communication ecosystem. This has happened in the past. There's new ways that people engage with each other. That's happened in the past. So there's some some part of it is adaptation, right? How do we just kind of you know participate in this new space and kind of stumble into various norms? Then there's the the law piece, right? Which is the okay, what where does um you know where do the courts begin to come down and and find? I think there've been a couple of cyber stalking and cyber harassment, cyber libel maybe laws that were passed in California um, recognizing again the sort of new and novel things that the web made possible so you know there's uh, but there's that um, there's that time gap and so you know people can have a very very bad experience in that time gap and that's where I think the the platforms try to use moderation policy I, I, I thought the um, one thing I was struck by during the kind of early days of the Elon conversation was everybody was talking about Supreme Court cases, and I'm like, but there's also 20 years of moderation policy, you know, and it's too bad that that's not like codified in some easy to see kind of format where you can see like, what was the disaster that led to this moderation policy change? Because um, I think a lot of that stuff gets memory hold. So again, that it's this idea of like, the Wikipedia for <laughs> content moderation policy or something like that. I think right now it just lives in like uh, platform blog posts and it's it's really not the easiest to find. So you know, people wonder how did we get here, and and it's actually kind of hard to figure it out. As as one final plug for Web three, putting on my biology hat a little bit, um, the the Web three take on that would be that a lot of governance decisions for DAOs or a lot of Web three organizations are public, and so yeah. like if a if a question comes up for the Ethereum name service about a thing. It's like publicly discussed in a forum. People delegate their votes to one of a set of delegates in a form of sort of quasi-democracy. An open vote is held, one side passes, and like it goes on, and that's it. It's end of story. It's not a closed door meeting. And I think a lot of people welcome um, you know, that level of transparency. Um, so in any case, I, we've gone way over time, Renee, which is <laughs> well, actually, no, I've got, I've got one person who's been waiting to ask a question who hasn't asked one. Lance, I'm sorry, uh, but there's, there's Richard behind you who wants to ask a question. Maybe let me ask him, um, uh, Richard, what question? Are you still there? And do you have a question? The mute button's on the lower right, Richard. Oh, no, we might have lost Richard. Um, okay, no worries. Maybe we'll just end it. Um, we'll end it there. Thanks, Renee, for making time. And... Um, 
Thanks for coming on pull request. And you know, this was a lot less spicy than I thought it would be, Renee. We, did, we didn't actually end up yelling at each other. I, I think I, I'm still going to tweet the finish him meme though, just so you know. Oh yes, no, no, yes. The the the, the Mortal Kombat reference is great. It's Super Gen X, which I love, or older millennial, exactly. which, is, which is perfect. I think I, if I want a free speech fight, I'm going to have to invite Mac Masnick. I think he's nasty enough to come on here and yell at me. So. Um, in fact, it's funny that Colin Booker originally thought we should pair you with Mike. And I'm like, I don't know. That's, that's three very big egos in one room. I, you just might not turn out well. Let's, let's separate it out. So, um, Mike, anyhow. Mike is awesome. Highly, highly recommend him as a guest. He's fantastic. Yes. Okay, yes. Then with that, I'll ask Pedro to, to get him on here and I'll, I'll brace myself. Okay. Thank you, Renee. And thank you, uh, pull request listeners. Um, this will go out on the regular podcast tubes. Uh, later today and thanks for joining us next week oh oh you know netflix series will come on pull request and give his first public reaction to the series and how he and everybody else is portrayed and so uh that's going to happen on i haven't set up the show but i think it's scheduled for wednesday and so tune in on wednesday in which we're going to get the real story behind super pumped if you haven't read it the book is actually pretty good um the series, I think, takes some really big licenses with the reality. So that's what we're going to get into. But anyhow, join us next week for a meal. And uh, thank you, Renee, for joining us. And see you again next week. Thank you. Bye. Yep. Bye.